You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We're going to read this entire metaphor of the vine and the branches, verses 1 through 11 in John 15. One of the reasons that sometimes I choose to read the same passage over and over again Sunday after Sunday as we're working our way through slowly is so that the the truths of what we have covered and and what we're about to cover just would continually embed themselves in your minds. And I I figure worst case scenarios, by the time we get to down to verse 11, you have verses 1 to 11 memorized because you've heard it read so much and spoken of so much. So that's why we sort of read this larger passage when we get the context. John 15, 1 through 11. We'll read these together and then we will open in prayer. I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful to You for Your Word, for giving us such a a, a trustworthy, reliable, infallible, and inspired revelation of Yourself and Your will for us and the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank You for that mercy and that grace of having Your Word in our own language and being able to have it before us, each of us, a copy. And we are thankful for the men who have bled and died to make that possible and the people who have worked so hard and tirelessly so that we might read Your Word in our own tongue. Thank you for that again. And we pray that you would give to us grace today as we work our way through this passage. Help us to understand difficult things that you might be glorified in and through your people as we understand the truth. And we pray that you would give us a love for the truth, that you would unite our hearts in the truth, and that you would confirm our hearts in the truth so that in loving it and obeying it, we would honor you as you so rightly deserve. Bless this time, we pray now, with your presence and with your spirit to be our teacher. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, all of us know people who have left and departed the faith, who for a period of time were Christians, and they looked like Christians, and they acted like Christians, and and uh, then after a period of time, they walk away from the faith. They, they leave the faith and make no profession of the faith or of Christ. Uh, probably everybody here knows of people that fit that description. Sometimes that departure or leaving of the faith happens rather quickly. Uh, something happens that uh, doesn't turn out the way that they want or they are burned in a church or that something says some, somebody says something to them or does something to them and this infuriates them. And so they up and leave the faith and walk away and say, well, you're all a bunch of hypocrites. You're all a bunch of uh, losers. I want nothing to do with those fakes and those phonies. And of course, they consider themselves to be the only ones who are truly genuine in that equation, but everybody else is a fake and a fraud. And so they leave the faith. 
Sometimes that departure happens over a period of time. They have walked the aisle, and they have made a profession of faith, and they got baptized, and they were really excited about spiritual things for a period of time. They adopted Christian language. They even cleaned their lives and got rid of some practices that they, that they used to indulge in, and and uh, they learned the Christian lingo and the language, and they come and they're part of a church for a period of time, and then suddenly, or after a while, those old attachments, the old commitments, and the old passions and desires and affections sort of creep back into their lives. It takes place over a period of time. And after a while, they leave the faith because those old attachments and those old affections have sort of strangled out their passion or their love for Christ. And suddenly what was really exciting to them when they walked an aisle is no longer exciting to them. And just kind of, well, you know, I, I tried that for a while and, and now I've just sort of added Jesus to all the other things that I do. And so then their, their departure from the faith takes place over a long period of time. Do you know such people? Have I described any of them to you? I went to high school with some people like that. I went to Bible college with some people like that. I went to Bible college and went on inner city missions trips and, and learned how to preach the word and teach the word and, and prayed with and, and lived in a dorm with and, and ministered with people who today make no profession of faith in Christ at all. They're not even interested in spiritual things. They don't go to church and they've totally apostatized and walked away from the faith. Some such people have come to this church and they have left this church. They've come and then they've moved on. You could probably name 10 or 20 and maybe 50 people without even slowing down to fit that description of people that you know who have, were Christians for a period of time and then have left the faith. The Bible's explanation of that phenomenon is not difficult to understand. It's very easy to understand. It's difficult to accept. Because sometimes it can be difficult to process that for us. Are these people saved? Were they saved for a period of time? Did they lose their salvation? Is it possible for them to come back? Uh, have they lost their salvation only for a period of time? Or are they still saved and just not not sort of walking with the Lord? Have they backslid or did they ever really slide forward to begin with? And so we try and process those things. And sometimes it's difficult, even more difficult, when they're loved ones. That person is our spouse or a child or our parents or a relative or a coworker or somebody that has been a good friend for years and years. The Bible's description of those people and explanation of what happens in those cases is not difficult to understand, it's just difficult to accept. And it's given to us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. It's not in the text that you're open to. Don't, don't turn back there, I'll read it to you. 1 John 2, 19, John says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it might be shown that they were not of us. Did you catch that? They were part of us for a period of time, but they were not really of us. Meaning they didn't have the same nature. They didn't have the real, really the same faith. That faith that we have in common that unites us in Christ, that life of, that is given to us in regeneration, that saving faith they did not have. And they leave, they depart from the faith, they walk out of the faith, giving evidence that they were really never part of the faith. Because if they had been of us, that is, if they had been genuinely, truly born again, they would have remained with us. But they didn't remain with us, but they went out so that it might be made evident to all of us that they never really had that faith to begin with. So are these people saved and then they lose their salvation? No, John's answer is they were never really saved to begin with. And their departure from the faith is the natural expression of that lack of salvation. They leave the faith because they were never part of us to begin with. In the language of John 15, they are cut off. They are severed. The vine dresser takes them away and pass them aside so that they might be dried up and then burned. But they were never really true, abiding, fruitful, 
of uh, branches that had the life of the vine in them. So we're in John chapter 15. In the last couple of weeks, we took the time in verses 1 to 3 to sort of introduce the characters. Uh, who are, who is the vine? Who is the vine dresser? Who are the fruitful branches? And who are the fruitless or non-bearing branches? And uh, we talked about the work of the vine dresser on the barren branches and the work of the vine dresser on the fruitful branches and the tool that the vine dresser uses, which is the Word of God. Now we begin in verse 4, and you'll notice that verse 4 begins with a command. Abide in me and I in you. And it begins with that word, abide. Really, this analogy that Jesus is giving, this metaphor, is not about fruitless branches. That's not the point of the metaphor. This is a metaphor, an analogy, an explanation, an illustration, if you will, that is given to fruitful branches, about fruitful branches, encouraging fruitful branches to remain fruitful branches. So it mentions non-fruitful branches. It mentions branches that are cut off, that do not have the life of the vine in them. That's part of the analogy, but that's not the central meaning of the analogy. The central focus of this analogy really is about the fruitfulness of the branches. How a branch bears fruit, why a branch bears fruit, what type of fruit does a branch bear, and what are the blessings of being a fruitful branch. That's really the the point and the purpose of this whole analogy. So sometimes we can get sort of sidetracked if we think to ourselves, the the whole gist of this analogy is to warn us not to become unfruitful. Otherwise, God will cut us off and throw us into hell. That is to totally miss the point of the analogy. This is... Really a metaphor about fruitful branches, spoken to fruitful branches to encourage them to remain and continue in their fruitfulness for the Lord and how the Lord does that. He prunes us and He doesn't cut us off. So we're looking at the word abide. That word abide, since uh, that, that word abide, which begins at verse 4, it is mentioned 10 times in verses 4 through 10. 10 times. The encouragement of verses 4 to 10 has to do with abiding. We are to abide. So now the question becomes, what does that word abiding mean? And we're going to take some time this week and next week, actually all, all today, to look at what, does the, what is the meaning of the word abide? What does it mean to abide in Christ? So that's the command. Abide in me and I in you, period. That's the statement. Abide in me and I in you. What does it mean to abide? Now, if I were to ask for a show of hands, and I'm not going to, so don't panic, and I were to ask you to give me a definition for what it means to abide, we would probably have almost as many illustrations or suggestions as there are people here today because probably everybody here has a different idea of what the word abiding means. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Am I abiding in Christ right now at this moment? Am I abiding? Is it possible for me to not abide? Is it possible for me to abide for a period of time and then to to not abide after a period of time? Is it possible for me to abide and then not abide and then start abiding all over again? Is that possible? Is it possible for me to uh, to lose that abiding status and then gain that abiding status all over again? If I am abiding, can I know that I am abiding? Or is it possible for me to think I am abiding but really not be abiding? And on the other side of it, is it possible for me to not be abiding but to really think that I am abiding? And if I am abiding, how can I know if I'm abiding? And if I'm not abiding, would I even know that I'm not abiding? Or if I'm not abiding, would I think that I'm abiding and be deceived into thinking that I'm abiding when I'm really not abiding? Is it possible for a Christian to not abide in the vine? Is it possible for a non-Christian to abide in Christ? Or is being a Christian and abiding in some sense, in some way, synonymous. Are these synonymous things? Is abiding something that I can measure? 
is it possible for me to be abiding today more than I was abiding yesterday? Or is it possible for me to abide more today and abide even less, God forbid, tomorrow? Is it possible for that abiding to sort of wax and wane, to increase and decrease, and sort of become uh, really productive and then not so productive? Is, is abiding something that we measure over time? Does, does the individual sitting here who has been a Christian for 40 years and walked with the Lord for 40 years, is that person abiding more deeply than the person who is a brand new Christian who has been saved for, say, 40 weeks? Is there a measure to this abiding? Do I... Do I strive to abide more? And how do I measure whether I am abiding? Is abiding something that grows with over the period of time as with experience? Is abiding something that I get really good at if I work really hard? In fact, is abiding really something that I have to work at at all? Or is it something that just comes naturally? Or is it something that happens and I might not even be aware of it? These are all really good questions, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, and I'm not even done. Is... <laughs> Is it possible for me to abide for a period of time and then for it to become less and less and less and less and less and finally to vanish away? For me to lose my abiding status. And if I lose my abiding status, can I get it back? How do I get it back? Is it possible for me to even lose it? Those are all good questions. If we just understand what Jesus means by abiding and what the abiding is, all of those questions, most of them, begin to answer themselves. So we'll work through today what this word abiding means and how it is used in the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is the Septuagint, how it's used in the New Testament by Peter, by Paul, but mostly how it is used by John. And I think that once we define what abiding is and we kind of arrive at an understanding of, of what Jesus means when he says that we are to abide in him and what abiding is, that once we understand that, a lot of these questions will just begin to sort of answer themselves. And uh, so we're going to deal with the subject of abiding and then some misconceptions about what abiding is and what abiding isn't, and if indeed it is something that we have to work at. So, John chapter 15, verse 4, we're just going to today look at this command to abide. John 15, 4, abide in me and I in you. Now, what does the word abide mean? Like I said, it occurs ten times here between verses 4 and 10. It is the Greek word meno. It has nothing to do with menonites or menosimons. It's just the Greek word meno. Sometimes the Greek words, Greek words have prefixes attached to them, so they are translated like abide under or abide with or abide beside. But that word meno occurs 118 times in the New Testament. So it is not by any means a rare word. It's a common word. And it simply means to stay in a place, to remain or to continue, to endure, to hold fast, or to stay in force. So it could be used of something that happens and the effects of that remain or they continue they abide they're still there they, it remains in force something happens and this remains in force like we say that we might say that a law is passed and that law now remains in force it abides as the law of the land as much as we might want the law to go away it doesn't it stays and it abides so it just simply means to continue to endure or in the modern vernacular we might say to stay put when it is used figuratively, it means to stay in a sphere of something. So it can refer to being inside of, say, for instance, the truth, or in the Word of God, or in the faith, or in sound doctrine. And when we use meno uh, figuratively, it means to stay in that sphere of things. So it just means to continue or to remain. Now, if we were just to go back and read John 15 and translate it as remain or continue, a lot of the the nonsense ideas that we have about what it means to abide would disappear immediately. 
Remain in me, I remain in you. Continue in me, I continue in you. The Father remains and continues in the Son. The Son remains and continues in the Father. That's all the word abiding means. It just means to remain or continue in the place, to stay put in the place where you are. It is used oftentimes in Scripture to describe the difference or to illustrate the difference between what is divine and eternal and fixed and never changes with that which is passing away and constantly passes away and changes or with what goes away. Meno is the word you would use to describe something of a divine nature or something of a divine work that never changes and it always stays and it remains the same. It abides in that sense that it continues. For instance, it's used in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So before the time of Christ, they translated the Old Testament Scriptures into Greek. They used that Greek word meno to describe, for instance, the Word of God in Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. You get the sense of it? Everything else perishes. All this created stuff around us, it goes away, it withers, it fades, but the Word of God remains. It stands. It continues. It abides. It meno. It remains constant. It's also used to describe the new heavens and the new earth in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 22. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure before me. I promise the nation of Israel. It will remain. It will continue. It's also used in uh, Romans, in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 9, verse 11, for the counsel of God, that counsel of God, that decree in God's purpose which does not change. It's never altered. It's not conditioned upon the response of man or the whims of history or how we view it or what we do with it. That counsel of God which is immutable and always remains, it's meno. It abides. It stands. It continues. Romans chapter 9, verse 11, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purposes according to His choice would stand. That's the word meno. That God's purposes would stand. They would remain and continue and hold fast and stay in that place. In other words, the counsel of God is not like the whims of man and the choices of men which change constantly. It stands and it is fixed and the circumstances of history and the flow of history does not change God's counsel. Peter uses the word to describe the word of God. 1 Peter 1, 23 and 25. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. And then Peter quotes Isaiah 40, which I just read a few moments ago. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord endures, remains, abides forever. And this is the Word that was preached to you. It's also used by Paul to tell Timothy that he is to remain or to continue and stand in the sound doctrine and the sound teaching and the Word of God and in the truth and in the faith. That idea of staying fixed and staying in something. But of all the places and all the authors that use that word meno, John uses it probably more than anybody else in either the Old or the New Testament. So what concerns us most is how John uses the word and the things that John says abide and continue and remain. Let me give you a couple of examples. John uses the word meno to describe the Holy Spirit remaining on Christ. Back in John 1, verse 32, speaking of John the Baptist, it says John the Baptist testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and He abided on Him, remained on Him. Let me ask you a question. Is the, the, the dwelling and the, the ministry of the Spirit of God on the person of Christ something that is temporary or something that is eternal and fixed and continuing? Is it permanent or temporary? It's a permanent reality. 
John uses the word to describe the Father abiding in Christ in John 14, verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. So let me ask you a question. The Father abiding in the Son, is that a fixed and permanent reality or was it a temporary reality? The Father abiding and continuing in the Son. It's permanent. It's fixed. It does not change. That's what it means to abide. John uses the word in describing true believers back in John chapter 6, verse 56. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And in John 6, the, the, the reference to eating the flesh and drinking the blood, that's not a reference to communion. It's not a teaching about the mass. It's not even a reference to literally eating and drinking the body and the blood of Jesus Christ at all. It is a metaphor for what it means to truly embrace him. Remember the point of chapter 6 is to distinguish between true believers and, and false believers. The true believers came to him for the meal, for the signs, for the benefits of it. But uh, Sorry, the false believers came to him for the meal, for the signs, for the benefits of what he could offer them. The true believers come to him and they embrace him and his teaching. And they, in that sense, eat his flesh and drink his blood. They take him for themselves. Not an external, shallow, superficial commitment, but a true, abiding, lasting, life-giving commitment that comes to Christ for who he is and receives all that he has to offer. That's John 6. And Jesus says, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, this is the one who abides in me. That is describing a true believer. Those who turned around after that very discourse and left, they were the ones that did not abide. They did not remain in him. It's also used of true believers in 1 John 2, verse 6. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in a manner as he walked. 1 John 2, 27. As for you, the anointing which you received from him remains, continues, abides in you. As you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you remain and continue in him or abide. First John 3.24, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us, the spirit whom he has given to us. He continues or remains. Now, every time I say the word abide, you need to be thinking of remaining and continuing like the word of God, enduring and abiding forever. 1 John 4.16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides, remains in love, abides and remains in God. And God remains, abides in him. It's used by John to describe the word of God in a believer. 1 John 2.14, I have written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong, and the word of God abides, remains in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now contrast that, the Word of God abiding and remaining in a believer. Contrast that with the way that Jesus describes the unbelieving Pharisees in John chapter 5, verse 38, when he says, You do not have His Word abiding in you, for you do not believe Him whom He sent. You do not have the Father's Word living in you because you do not believe. And the implication is, if they believed, the Word of God would remain in them. It would abide in them and continue in them. John uses the Word to describe eternal life, 1 John 3.15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding or remaining in him. John uses the word to describe the love of God. 1 John, 1 John verse 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 17, But whoever has the wor this world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God remain, abide in him? John uses the word to describe the truth of God. 2 John 2, For the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. How long is the abiding? Forever. It's interesting, John. If this abiding nature, if this abiding thing was something that was dependent upon us and our ability to maintain it, 
John could never use that word forever to describe the truth being with us. Because see, he could never know what you're going to do. Maybe you're going to decide to walk away. Maybe you're going to decide to leave the faith. But John can speak of believers and say, the believer, the truth remains with them, abides continually with them. It endures with them. Why? Because they're true believers. And so he can speak of a believer and say that the truth remains with the believer forever. John uses the word to describe the light. 1 John 2.10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. And John uses the word to describe continuing in the truth. 2 John 9, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ or does not remain or continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. For the one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. How do you know if somebody has the Father and the Son? They continue in the teaching of Christ. How do I know if somebody does not have the Father and the Son? They depart. They leave. They're cut off. They walk away. They leave the faith. They do not remain or they do not abide with us because they do not have the Father and the Son. John uses, lastly, the word to describe unbelievers who abide and live in darkness and death. John 12, verse 46, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain or abide in darkness. Unbelievers, those who do not believe in Christ, remain or continue in darkness. They don't come out of the darkness into the light, out of the light back into the darkness, out of the darkness back into the light, out of the light back into the darkness, and back and forth, depending on how well they're abiding. That's not how it works. They abide or continue in darkness because they do not believe. The one who believes is, does not continue in the darkness, is taken out of darkness, put into the light, and they abide and remain and continue in the light. And it's used of John to describe de- the death in which an unbeliever abides. 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed out of darkness, or out of death, into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. The one who does not love his brother still remains or lives in death. How do we know that we have passed out of death into life? How it is, how is it that we know that we remain or continue in life? Because we love the brethren. We love our brothers. Now that is by no means a comprehensive reading of every verse, though it may have just felt like I had just read all 118 verses in which the word abide occurs in the New Testament. But that's not it. But that is enough to give us at least some idea of what John means when he speaks of abiding. He uses, what do we learn from John's use of the word abiding? We learn that the Father abides or remains in the Son. The Son remains in the Father. That we remain in the Son and we remain in the Father and we remain in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son remain in us. We remain in the truth. The truth remains in us. We continue in the faith. The faith continues in us. We continue in life. Life continues in us. We continue in light and light continues in us. That's how John uses the word abiding. Never in any of John's writings does he use the term abiding to describe or to emphasize on behalf of the people of God something that is temporary, something that might fail, something that we do to keep active. That's not how John uses the word. And if we simply read it that way with remain or continue in John chapter 15, look what John says. Chapter 15, verse 4. Remain in me, and I in you. Continue in me, and I in you. Suddenly all these ideas about abiding and what it means and what we have to do and, and how we do this and the activities and us keeping up our faith and keeping fresh and keeping, keeping intimate and, and doing all of these things to, to keep close, all of that goes out the window when you just read the definition of the word in, with the word. Remain in me. Continue in me. Who is it that is said to abide? Believers. Believers abide. Who is it that does not abide? Unbelievers. Unbelievers leave. It really is that simple. Believers continue. Unbelievers depart. That's simple, isn't it? Believers continue. Unbelievers depart. 
Now, there is, back to John 15, there is a sense in which the analogy of the vine and the branches has to be brought into this subject of the abiding. We talked last week. You have the vine. The vine is rooted in the soil. The vine provides the life and the sustenance and the character and the sap for the branches that are connected to it. And the life of the vine flows out through the fruitful branches. The fruitful branches produce fruit because the life of the vine is in them. They do not produce fruit because they have their own life. They do not produce fruit because they are sucking life from some other plant. They produce fruit most naturally because the life of the vine, it flows through the branches and so they produce fruit. Those who do not produce fruit do not have the life of the vine in them. They do not have the life of the vine in them because they are not in the vine. They are in no sense, not in the sense of the fruitful branches, they are in no sense connected to that vine so that they receive life and fruitfulness from the vine. They they appear to be living, they are connected to something, but they do not have the life of the true vine in them, and so they do not produce fruit. Now this intimate union, this mutual abiding, we abide in Christ, we remain in Him, He remains in us, is is really the fleshing out of something that John has already, or Jesus has already said back in chapter 14. Look at chapter 14, verse 10. I'll give you a couple of passages here where Jesus is describing this intimate relationship. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. And once again, the abiding relationship between the Father and the Son, permanent or temporary? Is the abiding of the Father in the Son something that Jesus had to work really hard to make sure that He didn't lose? Or was it something that existed because of the nature of the relationship between the Father and the Son? It was something that existed because of the nature of the relationship between the Father and the Son. And the only way that the abiding could be severed or stopped was if the vine dresser cut off the branch, the fruitful branch. And what is the promise of verse 2? The vine dresser does not cut off the fruitful branches. He does not cut off the branches that abide. abide. He prunes them, but he cuts off the bright branches that are not remaining, that are not continuing with the life of the vine in them because they do not have the life of the vine in them. Look at John chapter 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth and the world cannot know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And once again, how long is that abiding of the spirit in us? Verse 16, it is forever. The end of verse 16, it's forever. That's what it means to continue and abide, to remain. John 14, verse 20. Verse 20, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Once again, is this describing a temporary relationship, something that we have to keep up to maintain or we're going to lose it? Or does this describe a relationship that exists because and, and, and continues because of the nature of the relationship itself? It continues because of the nature of the relationship itself. There is, in John chapter 15, not a hint of insecurity. The point of the analogy is that the branches that continue, continue because they have the life of the vine in them. And the vine dresser does not cut them off and cast them away and burn them. That's not what the vine dresser does to the branches that continue. And the branches that bear fruit, they bear fruit because they have the life of the vine in them. They have the life of the vine in them because they continue on the vine and they are not severed, they are not taken away, and they are never cut off. This whole analogy is about the security of the true sheep, of the true believers, of the true fruitful branches, and not something to warn us to feel insecure. Am I abiding enough? Am I doing enough? Am I remaining? Or have I left? And if I have left, can I come back? 
That's not the point of the analogy. The point of the metaphor is so that the fruitful branches can, ah, I remain. That's his promise. I remain. I continue. I will continue not because I do something to continue. I continue because of the grace and the life of the vine is in the branches. And it will always continue that way. And I will produce fruit because the vine dresser will ensure that I produce fruit and he will never cut me off. I am secure. And so this is, in some sense, a promise. It is both a command and a promise. And here, and here is how it is a promise. Think of this command in terms of it being a promise. Abide in me and I in you. It can be understood as a promise that Jesus has given concerning the nature of the relationship that exists between the fruitful branches and the vine. It is one of a continuing and abiding and eternal and a remaining nature. It is not cut off and it is not severed. And so the promise is this. You abide in me and I abide in you. That's a statement of fact and that is a promise. You remain in me and I remain in you. And in light of verse 2 and verse 3, that promise sort of pops and becomes very colorful and vivid. Think of it this way. He had just told them the vine dresser cuts off the unfruitful branches. They're cast aside and they are burned because they do not produce fruit, because they do not have the life of the vine in them. But you, the fruitful branches, you are not cut off. The vine dresser does not sever you from the vine. He prunes you so that you may bear fruit and that you may bear more fruit. You remain in me and I remain in you. See how that is a promise? A promise that they do remain. They are not the ones described in verse 2 that the vine dresser cuts off because they are fruitless. They, these 11, are the fruitful branches. It is a promise. And it is also a command. Now this is kind of the perplexing part and I struggled all week with how to explain this aspect of the passage because if you haven't asked this question yet, let me raise the question so that it at least can disturb you and then I'll give my best shot at answering the question for you. Here's the question raised so that it might disturb you. Why are we commanded to do something that really we can't not do if we're branches. In other words, if we are fruitful branches and it is impossible for us to not bear fruit and to not be cut off because the promise is that we will remain, then why does the Lord Jesus command us to do something that really there is no possibility that I would not do it if I am a true branch? Do you understand the question first of all? I'm going to let it sit there for a little bit just so you can be disturbed by it. Here's my best shot at an answer. The commands in Scripture like this one, to persevere, to continue in the faith, those commands, when given to believers, become the means by which God preserves and protects His elect from apostasy and departure. The commands themselves become the means by which God preserves us. Because a believer will read this command and say, that's what I want. I want to remain. I want to abide. I want to continue. Why? I would never think of doing anything else. I don't, I would never, it would never enter my mind to depart from the one who has, who, who is the living water, who has satisfied my thirst for righteousness and my thirst for eternal life. I would never leave the one who is the living bread, who has satisfied my hunger so that I never hunger again. I would never depart. So a believer reads a command like this and says, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. But then a believer has to understand that apart from the grace of God, we would never want to obey that commandment. And apart from the grace of God, we would never be able to obey that commandment. Because an unbeliever reads this and says, eh, depart, remain, depart, remain, sure. I the one. Today I feel like leaving. Tomorrow I feel like remaining. An unbeliever 
To an unbeliever, a a command like this is intended to shake them out of their false sense of security. A command like this is intended as a wake-up call to the half-hearted person, the half-hearted hanger-on, who just sort of superficially, in a very shallow sense, is attached to Christ and has come to Him for everything except for what He offers, forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And it is intended, when the unbeliever reads it, to shake them out of that and to make them ask some reflective, self-searching questions like, am I really abiding? Am I really in the vine? Am I there or am I shallowly committed? like Jesus is warning about here. Am I really continuing in remaining in Him? And so to the unbeliever, it should shake them out of that shallow sense of security that they have. It's a self-deceived security. But to the believer, the believer reads it and says, this is exactly what I want to do, and I will do that. And the obedience to this command, which is by the grace of God, is the very thing that gives, that, that protects His people from apostasy and keeps them in that state of remaining. It is, in that sense, a means of grace. A means of God's grace to us to protect us from the very thing that He is warning us about. So we are like those in Hebrews who we are able to say, but we are not like those who shrink back to destruction, but to those who have the, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. We are not among those who have come only so far and never embraced real salvation and then shrink back and come back away into destruction. We are among those who have true faith to the preserving of the soul. So to a believer, the means of grace to preserve us and to protect us so that we abide and remain. To the unbeliever, a warning call, a clarion call to wake up and make sure that you really are abiding, that you really are truly a believer, that you have repented of your sin and trusted Christ for salvation. Now, there are a number of misconceptions about what it means to abide. So we kind of covered what abiding means. Now, what about some of the misconceptions of abiding? There are some people who think that the abiding is the work that we do. As if God has provided salvation, He's made us savable, He's put salvation out there. And now it's up to you and I to grab onto that salvation by a decision that we make. And then we need to work really hard to make sure that we don't lose that. Because if we don't abide and we don't do the work of of maintaining a close relationship with the Lord, we will drift away and eventually be cut off and perish. So God has done, God has done, we do our best and God does the rest. He has made it possible and now we have to cling and we have to abide lest we fall away. I've heard it preached that way. I've heard it preached that way. I've heard people say, that you, you and I, we have to keep and maintain this relationship. Does that just sound like what John is describing here? That's not. Remain. Continue in me. The person who says that abiding is some work that we do by which we secure ourselves and stay in God's good graces lest we be cut off, that person turns the gospel into a works righteous system on par with anything that Mormonism, Roman Catholicism, or the Jehovah's Witnesses have to offer. It is a works righteous system to suggest that it is something that we do to maintain that. We are secure. I would just remind you of what Jesus has said all the way through this entire gospel. And if you're still with us, you don't need to be, you don't need to have me review all of these verses. I'll just remind you, we are secure. All that the Father gives him will come to him. He will never perish. No one will snatch them out of his hand. They are safe. They are secure. He will raise them up on the last day. It is impossible for him to lose even one of his elect or of his people. All who are his will remain and continue and be raised up. But not all who claim to be him, his will remain and continue. They will depart. They will leave the faith. That is the natural result of not being 
a true believer. So is the abiding some mysterious thing that I do? Do I have to do something every day to make sure that I'm abiding and continuing? No, the word abiding just simply means to remain or to continue. But does this mean that I never do anything to nurture my relationship with the Lord? That's not what I'm saying. We must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We must pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We must make our calling and election sure. We must serve. We must strive. We must mortify sin, put to death the deeds of the flesh. We must do these things. But listen, they are motivated by the gospel because the gospel is the reason that I do these things and the gospel empowers me to do these things. These means of grace by which I draw near to God and He draws near to me, these are sanctifying things for the elect, for the people of God, but we do these things as a response of and a work of the gospel in our hearts. So I, I make my calling and election sure. I work out my own salvation with fear and with trembling, knowing that He is at work in me, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. That is the work of God in me. So I'm not saying that we just neglect it and we can just sit back and coast. That's, that's not biblical teaching. But neither am I suggesting, and nor should we believe, that we have to do something to maintain our security. Our security is secure not because of the response of the sheep or something that the sheep do, but because of the work and the word of the Good Shepherd who has secured us for His own eternal glory. So that's what it means to abide. It is, a, is it a mysterious thing that I do each and every day to maintain God's good graces? No, it is not. It means to continue. And that word, that, that passage that I read to you at the begin, for, beginning, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, that describes those who go out from us and leave us, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained or abided with us. It's the same word. The fact that they do not remain with us is evidence that they are not of us. If they were of us, they would abide. If somebody is a believer, they will continue. They will remain, and they will remain steadfast unto the end. Because that is the work of God. The evidence of salvation is abiding. Abiding is the work of grace in the life of a believer, and abiding is the thing that distinguishes the true believer from the false believer. Now, we haven't even got into the, what the fruit or the benefits of an abiding branch are, but that's why there is always next week. And we'll do that next week. Let's bow together. Our gracious God, we are so thankful to you for the work of grace in our lives. It is the work of the gospel which has secured our salvation and the work of the good shepherd which secures his sheep. And so we pray that you would continue to manifest your grace in our lives as we pursue lives of holiness and righteousness to, as an expression of the gospel, an expression of that sanctifying work of the Spirit of God in our hearts. Give us grace to that end, but may we never rest in those things as a confidence of our salvation. May these things be the fruit of the salvation that is in us and the work of your Spirit in us. I thank you that you have secured our salvation, and now we gladly rejoice in the promise that we remain and continue in Christ, that we as fruitful branches will never be cut off and severed from the vine, that that would be a dishonor to your Son who secured the salvation of all his sheep. We thank you for your promises, and we thank you for granting to us salvation and grace and open eyes to believe and to know the truth. Thank you for your mercy to us in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.